top oil-producing countries in Latin America are having elections this year. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Welcome to another episode of 35 West, the podcast that talks about the 35 countries of the Western Hemisphere. My name is Richard Miles, and my guest today is Lisa Visiti, an energy expert at the Inter-American Dialogue. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Lisa, you've been focused on the Latin America energy topics for about the last 15 years, and you have a couple of degrees from George Washington University in New York University. So did you grow up on the East Coast, or where are you from? I did. I grew up in Baltimore, as you can tell from the way I pronounce it. (laughs) Um, And then after high school, I went to D.C., um, got interested in Latin America since a high school exchange trip to Costa Rica, and then I did study abroad for a year in Barcelona. Um, after graduating, I came back to D.C. and then went abroad to Guatemala for about a year working for an NGO there. And why the interest in Latin America? Do you have a family connection or one of your parents from there? Or? No, I'm Italian and Dutch. Okay, um, all right. But um, just through the language, I got interested in Latin America and initially through Spain with my European background and then got interested in Latin America as a you know larger and I think you know, more kind of dynamic region with a lot of different things going on right. in different countries. And then why energy? What is fascinating about energy that you... Well, I kind of I kind of got into energy um, by accident through a job I got after I got my master's in Latin American studies in New York um, at Energy Intelligence Group, which is a company that produces news and analysis on the global energy industry. And uh, they hired me to cover Latin America. And I just thought it was a fascinating kind of lens to look at all of the major political and economic developments in the region. Everything, energy is kind of intertwined with everything. So it's a really fascinating way of looking at Latin America. And I've been hooked on it ever since. It, you know, it strikes me that energy is one of those things that's fundamentally important, but most people sort of compartmentalize it. You know, if you're not in the energy space, right, you just sort of think it's one of those subjects that you don't necessarily need to keep track of, uh, that the specialists will do that. But in fact, as you said, it's really fundamental to almost every modern economy for sure. Yeah. So um, as listeners of this podcast know, there are a lot of elections this year in Latin America, some of which have already occurred. The the one in Venezuela, which most people wouldn't really call an election. Uh, we had our first round in Colombia, and we've got elections coming up in Mexico and Brazil, um, including a few other ones. So all have significant energy production, all those countries. Um, and it, it seems to me the trend is that the production is either declining or stagnant in a lot of the countries. So how big a deal is that? for the region, and how big a deal is that for the United States? Well, I think Latin America is a major oil-producing region. And even though we think of, you know, the Middle East as the main source of oil for the United States, it's actually been the Western Hemisphere for a long time. Um, And not all of the oil there is going to the U.S., but if you take all of the countries together producing in the region, it's a major area for oil production. And it's also, there are also economies there that are hugely dependent on oil, Venezuela being the first case. But in terms of government revenues and the economy overall, it's very important for Brazil, for Venezuela, um, for Mexico and Colombia. So I think it's really significant for the region what happens with the oil industry. Um, have, in general, and I know there, there are big differences in each country, but in general, have 
they gotten sort of smarter in terms of managing these resources, uh, you know, the, the investment that's required, the policies that are needed to sort of make this sustainable, or do we still sort of see a lot of ad hoc governance when it comes to oil or energy policy in these countries? Well, I think the direction that things are taking right now is generally toward more sort of market-oriented reforms. I think there's always been um, a real feeling of um, pride in the oil industry and interest in resource nationalism. And so we saw a wave of resource nationalism, of course, with Chavez and Venezuela being the, the main case. And now there's a move towards more market-oriented reforms and bringing in private investment because a lot of the countries are over-indebted. Um, relying too much on the state oil company hasn't worked. And so there's a move in the other direction. Um, and yet, you kind of, I think that voters don't really realize that the reforms that have been put in place right now are the ones that all of the industry experts were say, would say is the right direction to go, and things are going to start to turn around after oil production had been declining in many countries. Um, but I think politically, people are not seeing that, and so there's now sort of uncertainty about whether those reforms will remain in place. I think things are going in the right direction, but we don't know if that will be maintained. So let's go through a couple of those sort of uh, one by one, and then you sort of tell me what what is going on there that's significant. You know, Colombia already has its first round, and so we're recording this on, on June the 5th, and Ivan Duque, the center-right candidate, um, looks poised probably to win. It, is anything going to change in terms of Colombian oil production policy-wise or production-wise? So I think I think Colombia is kind of has always been the exception in terms of the resource nationalism issue. Um, it's it's a it's a big issue in other countries, but in Colombia, the kind of left right divide has not really been about should the model be more state led or should it be more market led. Um, it's really more about environmental concerns. So the left is more opposed to the oil industry um, because of environmental concerns. And um, Petro is saying Colombia needs to move past. Um, depending on fossil fuel exports and and diversify its economy um, and not use not really not produce oil at all anymore. That's a, a debate that's not going on in the other countries where it's more about the the objective is to increase oil production and the question is is it better for the state company to do it or is it better for private investment to do it? Um, I think in Colombia, um, it, you know, now it looks like Duque will win, according to the polls. And so I don't think that there would be as big a change in the direction of energy policy as if Petro won. Um, but the real issue in Colombia is about community consultations and about the relationships um, with local communities. There's been a huge amount of protests against oil projects uh, as well as mining. And so I think the question is, can Duque resolve that issue. Um, you know, it doesn't just depend on a government that wants to see private investment. It also depends on their ability to work with the local communities and figure out a way to resolve this uh, controversy. Now, in Brazil, the picture isn't quite so clear politically. We know Lula can't run, but other than that, uh, you know, we could go a number of different directions. Uh, what is this consensus there in terms of energy policy? Are we going to see a dramatic swing one way or the other, depending on who wins? I think it's really hard to tell because there are so many candidates, and with Lula still by far at the top of the polls when we know that he's not going to be able to run, uh, it makes it so unpredictable. Um, you also have Bolsonaro, who really has an unclear position on energy. I mean, you have other candidates that have more traditional. Ciro Gomez would probably represent the Lula-Dilma you know, state-led model. Um, Alcmin would probably represent the more market-led model. 
Bolsonaro isn't on either side of that economic debate. He really has no clear position on energy policy. Specifically, um, he said that he was in favor of the truckers during the strike where they were striking against um, diesel prices and, and wants basically to subsidize diesel prices. That's not a very market-friendly approach. Um, but I think at the same time, I don't think that he would um, he's also made comments that he wants to privatize Petrobras. So it's it's completely up in the air in Brazil. Uh, now, in Venezuela, ironically, it's pretty clear the direction that's going. And the Venezuelan government is continuing to run PDVSA into the ground. And uh, I think the only thing we can expect there is probably just continuing uh, declines in oil production. Any, any reason for optimism given the Maduro government? Well, I mean, I think in the case of Venezuela, you know, you didn't have a, a democratic election. So you can't really read, you know, what are voters on one side or the other in terms of what should happen with oil policy. Um, I think as long as Maluto is in power, uh, you know, I don't see the industry turning around. I think a few years ago, um, he had made some concessions to some of the companies, and it looked like he might be going in a more moderate direction. And there were some steps he could have taken, uh, such as giving the uh, joint venture partners more operational control, steps he started to take that were sort of, he kept the Chavista model, but maybe made it a little more investor friendly. And I think now we've really moved away from that direction. And so I think there's there's no question that as long as he's in power, oil production will continue to decline. Uh, people even think maybe below a million barrels a day this year when um, it's been well over two and a half million barrels a day for throughout the, the whole presidency of Chavez. It's a humongous drop. Um, but yet Venezuelan oil production is still a significant source of U.S. crude, right? I mean, doesn't that crude go up to what the Gulf Coast refineries is? Yes, but it's dropped it's a dropped lot, a lot. Okay. a lot. I mean, it was it's basically been cut in half over the last two years. Um, so I think that's a result partly of it's the drop in production. It's been affected by the sanctions. It's just much harder to make transactions with Venezuela um, because of the sanctions. And so the, the reliance that the U.S. has on Venezuela is much less significant than it was several years ago. And from what I've heard of sort of the sanctions experts or the policy folks is that um, although it's possible the U.S. could slap sanctions, complete sanctions on Venezuela, um, unlikely because uh, we don't also want to destroy uh, the, you know, sort of the infrastructure network, presumably for a day after rebuilding, um, after Maduro government. Um, so the likelihood that that goes away is, in my understanding, sl you know, slim because of sanctions. Well, I think that, um, you know, the sanctions have been incremental. So, you know, we'll see after each step, you know, see what the impact is. But, um, I mean, in any case, the rebuilding is going to be extremely yeah. difficult. I don't think you can really mitigate against that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about Mexico. Uh, regular listeners of the show, we have uh, heard us talk a lot about Mexico, and in particular about the Mexican elections coming up on July the 1st. Um, and the leading candidate still, has always been the leading candidate, is Andres Manuel López Obrador, uh, who I think the most recent poll I saw, he was up 52% uh, to something like 26, so basically double um, the, the number two uh, uh, challenger. Um, and to put it mildly, uh, López Obrador has not had nice things to say about Mexico's energy reforms in 2013. A uh, few quotes from his campaign book last year. He said, the energy reform gave away the assets of the nation, but above all aims to take away Mexico's energy sovereignty. 
And then the neoliberal government threw away almost 100 years of energy policy and sovereignty. And then more recently, uh, his presumptive energy secretary, a woman named Rocionale, said on the campaign trail, we cannot irresponsibly deliver our oil reserves to the transnational companies. On July 1st, we will end the looting of Mexico. So first question, Lisa, uh, what, what can he do legally uh, in terms of the energy sector? And then second part, what do you think he'll do in terms of policy? So legally, uh, the thing I think that he will not be able to do is actually overturn the constitutional reform because he would need a two-thirds majority in Congress. And even though his party is doing well, it's unlikely that he would have such a big majority. Um, but in in any case, the executive branch has a huge amount of control over the industry, it makes a lot of really critical decisions. So the energy ministry um, organizes the licensing rounds where they auction different blocks for exploration to private companies. They can decide which type of contract they're going to give for each block. So they could go they could give the type of contract that they gave before the reform happened, in which case it wouldn't be attractive to international oil companies. Um, they can choose which areas. They can select strategic areas that are only for Pemex. They could decide what Pemex's participation is going to be. They decide the fiscal terms, the finance ministry, so you can increase taxes and royalties. Um, there's a huge amount of flexibility, really. The government also has control over the timeline of the bidding round, so you can decide whether or not to auction certain areas. So just through the contracting process or the auction process alone, mm -hmm. they could essentially you could shut it down, shut it down because you, you just come up to. with completely unattractive contracts or terms and so on. Right, and that's what happened in Brazil. Really, is after as soon as the pre-salt was discovered in 2007, Lula froze all new licensing rounds for the pre-salt, um, and there was only one licensing round for 10 years. And the idea was, we, you know, this is huge. This is. For Brazilians, we need to give it all to Petrobras. What happened is that slowed everything down because Petrobras wasn't able to manage all those fields. So I think you could see the same thing in Mexico. And um, Lopez Obrador also has a lot of control over existing contracts, although you know it's difficult. I don't think that, he, that it's very easy to just unilaterally change contract terms. You can control you know, the speed at which you give out environmental licenses. You have some flexibility with the taxes on existing contracts. So there are a lot of changes that could be made even to some of the existing contracts. So as a policy matter, though, I mean, uh, Mexico stands to gain quite a bit. The Mexican government stands to gain quite a bit financially if they do negotiate favorable contracts. And already, I think, from the auction bids, they've already gotten, what, prepayments or bonus pay or signing bonuses, whatever they are. So as a policy matter, given that Lopez Obrador wants to expand social programs and, and so on, um, do you think he would actually sort of cut off this potentially lucrative source of revenue for the government? I mean, I think that I think that the his position is not that if you stop the process of contracting fields to private companies, that oil production is going to decline. I think his position is what we need to do is strengthen Pemex, and that's been the. Um, kind of the position of the PRD, which he was a part of before for a long time. So I think he would try to strengthen Pemex, give it a larger budget, and think that that would allow for an increase in oil production. Um, he could also increase taxes in order to get more revenue from the sector, even if we're not, he's not doing what would pro likely you know, develop 
the reserves the most quickly, he could still increase the tax take of the government. So I think you can make up for that revenue in other ways. Is it realistic, though, um, to strengthen Pemex? Because my understanding is that would require an awful lot of investment. You know, he wants to build two new refiners, I think, so that Mexico can refine its own gas. Um, so sounds like a lot of money, a lot of big capital outlay to do the things they need to do to Pemex. Is that a realistic – I mean, where are they going to get that money? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's realistic to think that you could reform Pemex. I think it's something that's extremely difficult I mean, it goes beyond just the budget. It's also um, just the way that the company runs. You know, there are, there are a lot more issues than just the budget. So I, I don't think that that's feasible. But, um, you know, it's, it's very expensive to build new refineries, but it could be done. Um, the other issue is that he doesn't want to import as much natural gas from the U.S. So he doesn't want to be sending Mexican crude to the U.S., refining it there and bringing it back as gasoline or importing natural gas from the U.S. Um, and he wants to expand renewable energy in order to do that, which is something that over time you could make that transition, but it would probably be more costly um, to, do, to, to you know, build that capacity in Mexico. Um, let's talk about energy uh, dependence for a bit here. Uh, a lot of folks have been talking about North American energy um, independence. And what they mean by that, obviously, is, you know, we're importing large amounts of crude and natural gas from Canada. And then at the same time, we're selling lots of natural gas to Mexico and electricity and so on. Um, and the numbers in Mexico's case seem to me, you know, sort of astounding almost, you know, that that Mexicans now, I think, import something like 60% of their natural gas from the United States and are converting their electric plants to being gas-fired. At, at what point do you think um, this becomes a political issue? I mean, it seems like at some point politicians on both sides of the border are going to start taking note of this and say, wow, Mexico seems to be, at least for natural gas, very dependent on the United States. Um, I haven't quite seen that. I mean, you alluded to it. It's, is, are, are AMLO's or objections due because of the dependence issue or is it because he simply – thinks that Mexico should be retaining the profits from its own energy production? Well, I think his opposition falls within his approach of nationalism, you know, economic nationalism, whether it's in energy or in in any other sector. Um, so I think up until now, the thinking has been this is a symbiotic relationship. This is hugely important for U.S. natural gas producers because they don't have enough of a market in the U.S. and this gives them an outlet for their natural gas. Um, for Mexico, it's beneficial too because it's cheaper to import natural gas as well as refined products from right over the border. It just makes more economic sense. So I think if you don't, if ideology doesn't come into play, this relationship makes perfect sense. And I think that's why it's worked so well for this time. I mean, I think more broadly, the idea of energy independence has really changed since the shale boom, because the U.S. is not that dependent on imports anymore. And, and the tendency is for the U.S. to become more of an exporter. Um, and I think that that means that there are more, even for other countries um, like China, there are more uh, options available for imports. There's more diversity of supply. The power that OPEC has is diminished. So I think the idea of needing the U.S. needing to be energy independent is a little bit, if anything, it's on the wane. Right. Um, one final question sort of about 
the the geopolitics of energy. You know, back in the sort of 70s and 80s, the the knock on on critics of U.S. foreign policy from the left and and then now actually from the right was that the U.S. was way too dependent on Middle Eastern oil and that that sort of explained all of U.S. actions in the Middle East is a focus on oil and that was all it was about. That was certainly the critique of the Iraq war. Um, so now we're in a situation in which, as you said, we're, we don't import as much, but it doesn't seem like the politics have caught up yet because in the debate about NAFTA and debate about our relationship with Mexico, I haven't really heard too much about the effect on U.S. energy interests. I've heard a lot about the effect on the automotive sector and a lot on the effect on agriculture sector. So uh, it seems, is there a lag now between what has happened in the global energy markets and then the political, the downstream political effects of that relationship change? I think there is. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of, in the U.S., politicians don't really understand that the idea of energy independence is kind of obsolete. It's not as important anymore. Um, and I think in Latin America, too, you still have this idea that the resources need to belong to the countries um, when, in fact, the best uh, economically for everyone is just to have more trade um, and to, to export and import more oil. Um, so I think the politics are very much divorced from, you know, the reality of global reality. oil and gas right, markets. Right. Well, I imagine that's good news for energy experts, right? So it means <laughs> you're, you've got solid employment for at least the next, uh, you know, a couple of decades as we sort of try to explain this to policymakers. But um, Lisa, thanks very much for being on the show. I'm sure uh, we'll probably see you again as we try to sort through the changes from these elections this year. But uh, glad to have you on 35 West. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks.